0: Hello, this is E. Michael Jones. We're uh, coming to you from our studios in South Bend, Indiana. And we have uh, with us a guest from Argentina, uh, Luis Álvarez Primo, uh, the translator of all of my works into Spanish. Here we have a copy of uh, the most recent book, uh, La Epifanía de Logos, uh, Logos Rising, translated into Spanish, available now for sale through culturewars.com. Luis is here uh, to talk to us uh, about the situation uh, in general and how it relates to the big picture uh, as we've explained it through Logos Rising and even through my new book, uh, The Dangers of Beauty. So welcome to South Bend, Indiana, Luis.
1: Thank you, Dr. Jones. It's been a pleasure. I was here uh, actually two years ago, and uh, I'm very happy to be back in South Bend on behalf of my friends in Argentina and Hispano-America and the people of the audience of Toda la Verdad Primero, T-L-V-1, first. Toda la Verdad Primero, Juan Manuel Suaje Pinto sends you his best regards.
0: Thank you, thank you. Uh, L- Luis invited me to Argentina. We took a tour there. gave uh, I gave speeches in bad Spanish all over the country. Uh, uh, We got to see things, uh, got a lot of insight into the current Pope uh, because we were in Buenos Aires. He was Cardinal Archbishop of Buenos Aires, got to meet with people there. That's another story we've written about that. Uh, A whole new world, a whole world down there that is uh, a subjugated part of the American empire. But that's what we're going to talk about today. So let's let's get into this uh, discussion here.
1: So yes, uh, actually, you are going to do the talking. I'm going to ask mm-hmm. a few questions. Okay, good. Uh, well, I was planning to ask you immediately about logos rising and then your book, the, the dangers of beauty. But motu infine velocior at this crisis, events are developing, and we have to talk about that first. Uh, what can you comment on this? Uh, Mm, uh, madness about the sabotage to the Nord Line pipeline, and how it, does it affect Europe and the world?
0: Yeah, you're right. This is a crucial moment right now uh, in world history. Um, uh, uh, most of you know by now that the Nord Stream pipeline, both Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2, were uh, sabotaged. Everyone admits it was sabotage. Uh, virtually the entire world, except for the mass media, have all uh, come to the conclusion that America destroyed the pipeline. It seems the evidence is, is uh, undeniable. We have uh, Joe Biden in February saying if Russia invades, uh, we're going to put an end to the pipeline. Victoria Newland said the same thing. Uh, Before that, uh, Condoleezza Rice said the same thing. It's bipartisan. We had uh, Ted Cruz, uh, the conservative Republican from Texas, all saying there is broad-based bipartisan agreement that we have to do something about the Nord Stream pipeline. It goes all the way back to the McKinder thesis, uh, which is the basis of... Uh, Anglo-American foreign policy right. Anglo-American foreign policy as the Argentinians know is based on the British Navy the British Navy will sail into the Rio de Plata and it will boy, it will uh, blockade your port and it will starve you to death we right. can't do that with Argentina it's too big but this is exactly what they did to Germany mm-hmm. uh, we're talking about the history geopolitical history of the 20, 20th century As soon as Germany rose to a position where it was uh, on the same level industrially with Great Britain, uh, Churchill and Lord Gray decided to lure Germany into a war. That was World War I. That was the main reason for World War I. Uh, The Kinder Thesis says, uh, whoever controls the Eurasian landmass controls the world. That means uh, if there seems to be some type of convergence of the Eurasian landmass, as germany coming to some type of agreement with russia the alarm bells go off and there's an immediate attempt to break up uh, that type of thing this is the hidden grammar of the war in the ukraine it has nothing to do with the ukraine they are simply proxy warriors for nato attacking russia there was a rand corporation memo document that came out earlier this year which said that the real purpose of the war in the ukraine is to get Germany to fight Russia, because in that instance, the United States wins no matter who wins in that.
1: How will Germans react now that they've realized that it is the Judeo-Masonic establishment in America has well, which now, has now, sabotaged now this.
0: first of all that's going too far we're talking there, there is a, a Logos rising in Germany right now is there? Okay, so there's a Twitter account called Sanctionen gegen die USA sanctions against the United States and there are people there the consensus there is that everyone knows that the United States did this uh, if the United States did this, this means that Uh, the united states has attacked a member of nato if the uh, uh, nato is attacked uh, article four comes into account which is basically any attack on one nation is an attack on all of the nations of nato the nations of nato have to unite and they have to begin by imposing sanctions so this is the whole point there are germans now who are calling for sanctions against the united states of america Mm -hmm. good luck good luck in doing that. Now we come into the reality of the situation, which is Germany is a completely conquered province of the American empire. It has never been anything but that for the past 70-some years, Uh, and uh, they have uh, no uh, political power to do this. So you have this dual consciousness now in in Germany where the mainstream media are all saying that Russia blew up its own pipeline, which is absurd. Absurd. But the people on the street talking to each other and to some extent in Twitter are all saying the Americans did it. What are we going to do? The Americans are our enemy. It's not Russia. The fact that the, the Germans had an agreement with Russia to build those two pipelines shows that they're allies. This is a natural alliance because Germany has... No energy, but it has a lot of industry, high tech capability. Russia is the exact opposite. Plenty of energy, needs technology. It's a natural alliance, and at this point, the American Empire intervened with an act of unprecedented ecological terrorism. Uh, uh, this is, there are people talking about this. Uh, Pepe Escobar wrote an article about this is the the, the terminal phase of the American empire. Terminal phase of the American empire. And they are flailing around uh, desperately trying to prevent the inevitable. The inevitable is the decline and collapse of the American empire.
1: But before that, uh, it's interesting what you have analyzed uh, concerning the post-Second World War history, how uh, the... The Jewish engineering affected the German people, how the German people were led to internalize what you say the commands
0: of the oppressor. Can you refer to that? Yeah, yeah. This is now this is the one thing there is general consensus. Okay, Tucker Carlson, who is the extreme, the end of what is permissible in the mainstream media has already said, America did it, this is uh, terrible, but no one is bringing in the most recent past, the most relevant past. What's missing from the uh, equation is what's going on in the rest of the culture. We are now seeing a, a return once again to the Holocaust. The Holocaust is the founding myth of the American empire. The founding myth of the American Empire, and I'm saying that the American Empire began after World War II. Mm -hmm. And the founding myth is that the good Americans rescued the Jews from the bad Nazis. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's the story. Now, the the Jews are never content to leave well enough alone. They are in rebellion against Logos, as I said in the other book You translated, the Jewish revolutionary spirit. And so they're always pushing things too far. So now they are coming out with documentaries uh, like uh, Ken Burns' documentary, The U.S. and the Holocaust, which is basically claiming that the Americans are now the villain because the Americans are all anti-Semites. There's a new biography coming out, and the key figure it's of the key figure in this regard, and it's Henry Morgenthau, Jr., No one in America knows who Henry Morgenthau Jr. is anymore. He was uh, the Jewish Secretary of State under Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Uh, He was the main influence in Roosevelt's life. He was a lifelong friend. And as Roosevelt got weaker and weaker, Morgenthau's influence got stronger and stronger. And the one thing that Morgenthau was concerned about is how are we going to deal with Germany after the war? So, there we have the, the Morgenthau Plan. The Morgenthau Plan Secretary is Secretary of the Treasury, right? Secretary of Treasury. Uh, the Morgenthau Plan came out. The Morgenthau Plan was very simple and it's crucial to understand the present because the main part of the Morgenthau Plan is the deindustrialization of Germany. With what consequences? The de The the conseq- main consequence is that Germans will now starve to death. Germans cannot produce enough food to support their population. They must produce uh, 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 expensive technological uh, uh, products so that they get enough foreign uh, money to buy the food that they need. And what was the motivation for that? Jewish vengeance. Mm -hmm. Jewish vengeance. The Jews were furious at the Germans. And the Jews, I know this comes as a surprise, the Jews are not Christians. Hatred is a Jewish virtue. Revenge is a Jewish virtue. Hatred is a Jewish virtue. If you don't believe me, uh, read First Things, an article by Rabbi uh, 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 Solvicek, Meyer Solvicek, a protege of Robbie George. He wrote an article saying hatred is a Jewish virtue in First Things. I'm not going to disagree with the rabbi. He knows what he's talking about. And so what you had here was <clears throat> the Morgenthau plan. It's what he, he wasn't the only one. There was Louis Neiser who wrote a book. Another Jew wrote a book about maybe we should sterilize the Germans. Uh, the- <coughs> Theodor Kaufman, another Jew at the same time, also writing a book. Germany Must Perish. Germania Delenda Est. That was the plan. And Morgenthau was the man who came up with the implementation of the plan. And concretely, we're talking about the... Deliberate starvation of the German people. This occurred during what the Germans called das Hungerjahr, the Hunger Year, from uh, and it was basically the winter of 1946-47. If you don't understand that, you can't understand what's going on right now. The Jews never gave up on the Morgenthau Plan. It's being implemented right now. We are the Germans are facing das Hungerjahr, the next Hungerjahr, which is going to be the winter of 2022-2023.
1: Two, uh, so we can say, temporarily that plan was interrupted when, with the Marshall Plan, wasn't it?
0: So that, so to get back to yeah, to so the historical moment, uh, there were so enough Christian conscious. Let's put it, enough Christians in positions of power in the United States at that time. We still had a WASP ruling class, a mm-hmm. Protestant ruling class. And these people were appalled at the Jew- at Jewish vengeance. We're talking about General Patton, who was appalled, was writing about this in letters. Patton was going to come back. He resigned. He was appalled at the way the Jews were treating the Germans after the war. He was planning to come back and start a political career, and he was murdered. Died in the hospital. All, when important people die in the hospital, I'm always suspicious. But there was a, an automobile accident. It was serious, but it wasn't fatal. They put him in a hospital and he was killed in the hospital to stop that. There were other people, Herbert Hoover, uh, the Quaker, who was president of the United States, former president. He started raising money for the Germans, raising consciousness. The Germans, this is no way to treat these people when they were defeated in war that doesn't mean you have a right to exterminate them but this is exactly the way the jews were talking "Germania delenda s germany must perish it's the german people are bad it's not the nazi leadership it's the german people themselves they're bad people this is totally jewish and at that point the adults in the room woke up to the fact that if you pursue this course the Germans are going to welcome the Soviet army as a liberator. right? And that was the plan. I think that was the plan because Morgenthau's assistant was Harry Dexter White, uh, a Jew, a communist, a spy, who was working for directly under uh, Morgenthau, probably mm-hmm. wrote the Morgenthau plan. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, it's all also very interesting, your comment about uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, who at that time was a young man, wasn't he? So he he was able to to see all of that. What could have Cardinal Ratzinger do or Pope as, as Pope Benedict XVI uh, in, 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 in telling the German people about this story?
0: Yes, Ratzinger was an absolutely crucial figure in post-World War II Germany. So Ratzinger uh, is 20 years old in the spring of 1947. You know whether you're hungry when you're 20 years old. If you're two months old, you know whether you're hungry or not. Here is an entire nation that is being starved, to de- deliberately starved to death. Now, Ratzinger was lucky in this regard. Uh, he was captured as a prisoner of war by Patton who treated the prisoners humanely. If he had been captured by Eisenhower, he might have died, died on the Rheinwiesenlager, mm-hmm. the, the internment camps along the Rhine floodplain where hundreds of thousands of German soldiers perished because Eisenhower would not declare them prisoners of war.
1: Let me say, in, in one of your articles in Culture Wars, uh, you, you refer to a recent book that deals with that uh, question, right? Uh, this Volkner's uh, Uh, Book.
0: what is Where is it? The appointment. Yes. The appointment. You make it. Yeah. Came out simultaneously in German and English. A a book by a young lady by uh, Catalina Folkman. This is as I'm trying to say with the the symbol here on the cover. uh, This is the hand coming out of the grave. We're talking about uh, flooding. In exactly this area of the Rhine, the R valley goes into the Rhine, very narrow valley, flooding was catastrophic, and it, it, there are reports there that bones started to appear out of the ground. What was that? The, uh, the, the soldiers who had died, the German soldiers mm-hmm. who had died in the rhine wiesel mm-hmm. One of the main... Pl- Can well, I mean the blood, the, the floods the,
1: that took place there. The it, was
0: just, it was just heavy rains. They had mm-hmm. heavy rains okay. that summer, and they're narrow valleys, and the narrow valley fills up. And uh, So anyway, this is, there were reports that their bones started appearing out of the ground. Okay, whether it's true or not, what we're talking about is the German repression of their own history.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The repressed always returns. What does it mean? That means it's, it's, the idea is from Sigmund Freud. So if you have something that, let's say, uh, you feel guilty about something and you can't confess the guilt, you try and repress the guilt. You're always bringing it up. You're, you're convicting yourself. They, we say the criminal always returns to the scene of the crime. Mm-hmm. Right. There's always some sense in which you can't repress the guilt. The guilt keeps coming back. And in this case, it's uh, the, the, the repression of the memory of what happened to us, us, the Germans, after World War II. It's been repressed. It's been replaced by a new narrative. The name of the new narrative is called the Holocaust.
1: By the way, you are writing a book about the Holocaust, right?
0: Yes, yes. What's
1: it, the, the title? Uh,
0: the Catholic Church and the Holocaust.
1: The Catholic Church and the Holocaust. It's now, got to do with the, the Catholic Jewish dialogue, too.
0: Absolutely. So, so the the beginning of this uh, of this new, new take, a new understanding, begins with Ratzinger. He's a crucial figure. So he's 20 years old. He is now in the seminary. He's been spared... Uh, the worst aspects of it, I said, because he was captured by Kat Patton, who just released the prisoners. He was at the seminary; they were growing their own food, so he wasn't starving the way the Germans in the cities, and the German c- cities were destroyed. But he knew about it. Everybody knew about it. It's part of German his history books. Uh, das Hungerjahr is a topic, and also the Morgenthau Plan. And he knew. Every German knew it was the Jew Morgenthau. Now you couldn't say that because. Goebbels had already said it. He got the, the draft of the Morgenthau plan in 1944. He makes big propaganda about the Jew Morgenthau. Uh, and uh, uh, it, it strengthened German resistance because they knew that the Americans are not just going to get change the regime, they're going to destroy the German people because the Jew is in control. And when he's in control, uh, there's no mercy. Read... Uh, Merchant of Venice, if you don't believe me. Mm-hmm. Shakespeare's. I crave the law. He's there. He, Jew doesn't want mercy, he wants justice. Be careful when you ask for justice. Mm-hmm. So that's the, that's the, so as time goes on, Ratzinger becomes the most prominent theologian in Germany. Everybody's, he's the Das Wunderkind. And uh, he finally meets up with Cardinal Frings was the hero of the story because Frings defended the German people. He was Cardinal Archbishop of Cologne. He told them to go. If you break into that American warehouse and take the food, it's not theft because they're trying to starve you to death. He was a hero, but now he's an old man. And so in 1959, Frings meets Ratzinger. Ratzinger gives a speech. Frings is very impressed. He goes up to him and says, uh, uh, there's going to be a council. I want you to come to Rome and be my expert, my peritos. And this was a momentous, an important moment in German history, because, first of all, Frings is now distracted. The the, the sequel to the Hunger Yard was the sexual corruption of Germany. Germany was the Marshall Plan, gave them money. But at the same time, Germany is being flooded with pornography as a way of destroying this is the thesis of my book uh, libido dominandi sexual liberation and political control
1: with all these uh, jewish psychologists and psychiatrists well censoring,
0: censoring right so so to get back to that moment and conquer germany now in order to get a license to produce a magazine you have to go to a jewish psychiatrist david mordecai levy is in charge of handing out licenses. If you want to publish a book, a magazine, a movie, whatever, you have to get a license from this man. And in order to get a license from this man, you have to go and talk about how guilty you feel because of what the Germans did to the Jews. This is a selection process that guaranteed that the magazines would be subverting the morals of the German people. I'm talking about Stan. Illustrated magazines were the cunning art of communication at that point. Television was insignificant at this point. Stern and, more importantly, Spiegel. their Spiegel. Stern is like Life magazine. Spiegel is like Time.
1: And so you feel that this social engineering that has kept uh, the German people uh, submissive and docile <laughs> to, to the commands of the oppressors is breaking down now?
0: That's the question. That's the question. Now, this was written, two, I think, believe, two years ago. This is based on a novel by a young lady by the name of Catalina F- uh, Folkmer. And I'm saying the premise of the novel is <clears throat> absurd. So it's basically a, a lady uh, who has her legs spread in, a gyne- in the gynecologist's gynecology. office. And he's going to sew onto her a Jewish penis so it's talking about transgenderism because that's interesting now part of what's going on this is a this is a satire i'm saying this is not to be taken seriously there's a deeper meaning here and it's basically she's trying to explain the submissive nature of the german population to the jews she wants a jewish penis because the jewish penis will free her from guilt this is crazy this is a satire i'm the only one who said that
1: but this this, this is kind of uh, sexual liberation is promoted all over the world uh, by by Jews. Yes, they, they liberate corrupting uh, uh,
0: gentile women. Right. The main the main, this is the main vehicle of uh, the subjugation of the German people. Mm-hmm. It was sexual liberation because sexual liberation is a form of control. I was teaching in Germany from seventy three to seventy six. I saw it firsthand, didn't understand it until later. uh, And that's precisely what happened. So there's a deal that goes on here. The Jew says to the German, you can do whatever you want in terms of sex, but you have to say that the guilt that you receive from that is because of the Holocaust. So sexual liberation and the Holocaust go hand in hand. Holocaust is the manipulation, the political instrumentalization or weaponization of German guilt.
1: And and if you are against that, you go and you say it,
0: you go into jail. That's right. So what they have, so it's not enough. Now they have, uh, there are at least 15,000 political prisoners in jail. How many? 15,000. 15,000 for for this? For, For thought crimes. Questioning. The Holocaust is illegal. You go to jail for doing that.
1: Well, Mike. Uh, so you were discussing the role uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, uh, Benedict XVI, played. How does his performance uh, relate to Vatican II and and the, the the German social engineering and oppression and the Morgenthau Plan? Who are talking about?
0: So uh, Frings takes ratzinger to rome and the op- at the opening of the second vatican council frings is blind he's an old man ratzinger is basically his eyes and his mouth mm-hmm. ratzinger writes all of his speeches and so on and so forth and uh, the first confrontation is between ratzinger and ottaviani now Ratzinger's is in the background it's frings who so is speaking he's the hero of the german people in world war ii And uh, Ottaviani is the man who was the author of the council. Cardinal Ottaviani was the head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. And he wrote a series of preliminary documents in which he portrayed his understanding of the church as being threatened by communism. Everybody knew that, but also by America. Mm -hmm. There's a problem from America, too. And he mentions psychoanalysis and he mentions Hollywood. Well, they're Jewish operations. So he's basically talking about the Jewish question. Mm -hmm. Uh, But no one can say this overtly anymore so Ratzinger throws out the documents he defeats ottaviani with the help of the cia now i'm not saying he collaborated deliberately but time magazine was working to portray ottaviani as the villain time magazine was heavily involved with the cia it was the mouthpiece of the cia Uh, the ministry of information the the propaganda ministry for the uh, Mm -hmm. for the cia so now we have a new, a totally new situation. I mean, Ralph Wilkin wrote a book called The Rhine Flows into the Tiber. This is what I'm talking about. He didn't have the information that we have now or I have now. Uh, but uh, basically, the Germans took over uh, the Vatican Council. And what is the main problem the Germans have? It's this guilt that was imposed upon them by Jewish social engineering after the war. So instead of confronting it, <laughs> they impose it on the church. And now the church is burdened with Catholic Jewish dialogue, fifty years of failed uh, failed experimentation, a failed experiment, based on one sentence in Nostratate which says the church opposes all forms of anti-Semitism. Well, what does that mean? No one has defined the term. and anti-Semitism is anything a Jew doesn't like. So now the church is completely crippled, and that leads to the, the second assault, which is, well, this is 1964. While Frings, who was the main opponent of obscenity in Germany, is now distracted in Rome. He's speaking through, he's basically Ratzinger speaking through him. The Jews break the uh, obscenity laws in Germany. 1964, a movie called Das uh, Schweigen, The Silence, a Swedish movie by Ingmar Bergman. It was created to be a code breaker simultaneously they tried to break the code in america it fails the pawnbroker no, no. that was we're talking about 64. they tried it and uh, the silence nobody knew about it it had no traction whatsoever there was a far sex farce called kiss me stupid with dean martin and kim novak that failed next year they roll out the big guns and that's the pawnbroker this is the holocaust now And that's the sacred narrative, and the Catholic Church simply rolls over and plays dead. They abandon their own legion of decency. It collapses because you, because of what happened at the council. The Holocaust is now Catholic dogma, and so as a result, collapse on both sides of the Atlantic, both the United States and Germany. Sexual revolution sweeps through, and once you have sexual revolution in the media, the Jews take over discourse. And that led to the Jewish takeover of our foreign policy, which led to the Ukraine, and that's where we are today.
1: Right. Well, very interesting. We can. It helps a lot to understand what's going on now. Uh, we will continue to discuss this, and I'm sure you will continue to write in Culture Wars about these topics. So, um, since we do not have much time, we can discuss a little bit uh, about uh, Logos Rising, which we call La Epifania del Logos in Spanish, and then about uh, The Dangers of Beauty. Right. Your wonderful, marvelous last book. Right. So, uh, Concerning, well, in in logos rising, you somehow mm, prove the need to restore uh, a metaphysical restoration of logos to politics in general, right? Right. right. Um, can you refer to that? What are the consequences yeah, yeah. we are living in now?
0: There is. Ne- you you will always have a meta medica- metaphysical foundation to the empire to any political you can't a a, a regime cannot exist without a metaphysical foundation now you can have a good metaphysical foundation or you can have a bad there's only one real metaphysical foundation and that is the one that aquinas appropriated from aristotle and that's basically the uncaused cause and the unmoved mover and that establishes certainty and this is what precisely happened in the Catholic Church over the course of the 19th century. You had a, a return of Thomism after centuries of where no one knew what it was. Uh, in 1871, I believe it was uh, Pope Leo XIII issued an encyclical called Aeterni Patris, which said that Thomism is the official philosophy of the Catholic Church. Right. This first took root in France. Big Thomist revival in France, two of the main... Uh, Pillars of it were Etienne Gilson and Jacques Maritain. After the war, both of those men came to North America. It was, Maritain said, it was like the fall of Constantinople, where you had to take the books, uh, all the books, to move them to Western Europe. Well, now we're moving them from Europe, which has failed because of the war, to America, which is the new hope, the new hegemon. Mm -hmm. And uh, it came specifically to Notre Dame University, 1953, Notre Dame University implements uh, Eternity are every student has to learn Thomism. So, two questions. On the one hand, why did you write Logos Rising,
1: and uh, how do, uh, does this book relate to your previous books, uh, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit and Libidius Dominandi? And we can also mention baron Metal.
0: Yes. Okay, so I wrote The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. I had to, there was one word I had to use in this book, and it was Logos, because I had to define the Jew. What is a Jew? They're, you're never going to learn this from asking a Jew, because they change the definition depending on So sometimes it's a religion, sometimes it's an ethnic group. I'm saying it's really uh, the Jewish identity came at the time of Christ when they crucified Christ. Christ is the Logos incarnate. When you reject Logos, you reject the order of the universe. When you reject the order of the universe, you you become a revolutionary, and that's been their identity all the way to the present for 2,000 years. And uh, the Jewish revolutionary spirit is the history of anti-Logos. So when I wrote this, I thought I'll do the opposite now. I'll do the history of Logos. And that's uh, largely because... I've been traveling all over the world. So I was in Iran. And how do you speak to people from a completely different culture? An ancient culture like Iran. I go to India. Same thing. It's an even more ancient culture than than Persia. More complex. (laughs) More complex. How do you talk to people? So I was on the Internet and I said to uh, uh, a guy from India, I said, there's no Logos in India and he's upset. And I, what do you mean by that? It's kind of like insulting for me to say that. And I said, well, look at the the Jewish cosmology. Uh, the Jewish, Indian. the Indian cosmology. The earth is a semicircle. It's sitting on four elephants. That's on a turtle. I said, what's the turtle standing on? He couldn't answer that question. And as a result, he became a Catholic. This is the, 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 the goal of Logos rising. We have a duty to promote Logos. It's not an option. I mean, faith is given to us by grace, but metaphysics is a duty. you have a duty to be rational no matter where you are in the world. And so this was an attempt to start that dialogue with every basically everyone in the world.
1: And uh, our dignity and, uh, and, and our survival depends on on that restoration of logos and that's the the only one that affords us, the possibility of establishing a true
0: dialogue, a true universality, because we are all uh, rational creatures. That is a universal phenomenon, and we simply have to address it that way. In in what way? Uh, some commentators have said that
1: "logos rising" in your book uh, marks the end of
0: a historical Thomism. Yes, that's the problem. With, that's the problem with Thomism. This is the Achilles' heel. It's based on Aristotle. It is true in terms of metaphysics. But Aristotle did not know that the world was created. No Greek knew that. That was revelation from the Jews, from the Hebrews. Uh, And because he didn't know that the world was created, he couldn't explain time. So the change took place with Aquinas, wrote a little book called De, De Eterne De Eterni Mundi Contra Murmurantes, the Eternity of the World, and the Eternity of the World against the Murmurers. And he said, very subtle mind, he said, even if the world were eternal, it had to come into being. Now, that's subtle, because most people confuse time and causality, and Aquinas was subtle enough. And he says, because this world couldn't, could not create itself, because to do that, it would have to exist before it existed, and that's impossible. So this is uh, a new development. And Aquinas really never, he he died when he was 49 years old. Very young. So he never had the chance to implement that understanding of history, to integrate the understanding of history that is intrinsic to Christianity into an ahistorical Aristotelian metaphysics. Didn't do it. Mm -hmm. And the problem was that the Thomist revival didn't do it either. And so, as a result, you had this ahistorical Thomas.
1: In the last chapter of Logos Rising, you give us a good lesson, uh, we could say, in historical methodology, because it, it, the, the chapter is called Annus Mirabilis, 1979. And you, you connect all the historical dots to prove what had happened in that miraculous or wonderful year or decade. Right. Uh, It's part of your own method, too, that people think, well, I like to to read Dr. Jones because he he connects all the the dots of history. Can you tell us a little bit about...
0: Yeah, so what we had is an uprising against materialism Mm in 1979, a spontaneous Mm -hmm. uprising that could not have been coordinated by the people who did it. So the first thing, in February of 1979, the Ayatollah Khomeini returns to Iran, the Shah is overthrown, and they institute uh, an Islamic republic. So it's a religious reaction against materialism. Six months later, no, no, four months later, four months later, Pope John Paul II goes to Warsaw and says mass at an officially communist, atheistic country. And he awakens the religious consciousness of the Polish people. And at that point, he begins, the, what we're seeing is the beginning of the downfall of communism, uh, which is the Eastern materialism. So the Shah, uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini is reacting against America, which is Western materialism, consumer materialism. This is atheistic uh, materialism in the Soviet Union. That could not have been, co- that was not coordinated by these two men. The, the Pope wrote to, after the hostage crisis, the Pope wrote to the Ayatollah Khomeini and asked them to release the hostages. And the Ayatollah Khomeini just replied with a, a rude kind of contemptuous reply, and basically called him a lackey of the American empire. So they didn't like each other. They didn't coordinate. But there was a bigger plan. I'm saying this is God's plan because the only way you can explain this simultaneous rejection of those of uh, materialism and
1: the nature of that uh, rejection and revolt was religious right it was a religious uprising not an uh, econo- in economic or capitalistic
0: yeah uh, no. Uh, no it thing. wasn't capitalism versus communism it was religion against both capitalism and communism mm-hmm. that was the moment movement of logos in human history And I'm saying, that's what we have to understand, that God's in charge of human history. And we are kind of, we have to collaborate with God, uh, but the plan will go forward whether evil men collaborate or not, because if evil men could thwart God's plan, it would have been over a long time ago.
1: Your thesis, uh, which is entirely Catholic, of course, and classical, uh, reinvigorates hope because it uh, helps us remember that uh, divine providence is always present present uh, and uh, there is rationality in history and and we can expect developments to 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 lead to a, a certain meaningful uh, worthy
0: end right. right right so this is there are three transcendentals, the good, the true, and the beautiful. Mm-hmm. And philosophy is how you achieve the truth. And but there's another transcendental, and it's beauty. And so this book, the, the uh, Logos Rising, led to this book called The uh, the Dangers of Beauty. This mm-hmm. is a transcendental. And the premise here is this: is they're both going to the same goal. But you're, this book shows that at certain periods in history, the artist can portray what the philosopher cannot explain. And right. that's the story of the rise of Logos in the arts. And how, how, how important that is. So, mm,
1: in what way does art
0: promote... Moral, the moral and social order. Well, these they're, inter- they're interchangeable. So the good and the true and the beautiful are all interchangeable. So Keats said, "Truth is beauty and beauty, truth." That's the poet. He didn't understand it, but he said it because the poet can say oftentimes what he doesn't really understand. And so the the crucial turning point came in Italy. Now, this is a, the, the Greeks were the cutting edge of logos in human history. All the way up to the Council of Nicaea, when you had a discussion about the Trinity that had to take, you had to speak Greek in order to be part of that discussion. The Latin fathers were excluded. Over this period of time, something happened to the Greek world. It became ossified. Uh, because it, it, the, and so Vasari, when he's talking about the development of painting, he talked about Giotto, and he said Giotto had to break with Greek models. The Greek model was the, icon you would never have a dynamic painting like this in the greek speaking world in the orthodox world because you had to break with the icon this is heavy dude this is serious psychological drama here uh, in art and so giotto and aquinas are almost contemporaries giotto is a little bit younger than aquinas but giotto articulated the principle that aquinas said now before, it's Platonism. That is the regnant aesthetic ideology. It's the regnant philosophy. Nobody knew about Aquinas, except the Arabs. The I mean, the, the Muslims. So at this point, Aquinas... Aristotle, you mean? Nobody knew about Aristotle, mm-hmm. except the Muslims. Right. And Aquinas got it through uh, Islam, through Averroes. So at this point, you finally have someone who is taking... The notion of creation seriously if god created the world god is an artist Indeed. and that means the world is a work of art Indeed. and that means if you study the world as it exists you will enter into the mind of god to some extent now this is also the time of the birth of science which was uh, albert the great thomas aquinas's mentor created science at the time. But the artist did it by breaking with the Greek model and looking at the world. So this, there's the world. It's back there. It's not simply a gold background. The world is, this is the real world, and these are real people. And that, you have a breakthrough in mimesis. Mimesis is imitation of nature. That's all art is. It's all it will ever be. But at this point, you had a new understanding of nature. It wasn't, the world wasn't eternal. It was created. It was a work of art. There is a logos in nature. Plato didn't know that. Nature was the world. There was the world of forms. There was the world that we live in. This is total chaos. It's total flux. The only way you can have art is to impose forms on inchoate nature. And the classic example of that is the temple. Which is basically geometric forms right. imposed on nature. This led, this is the latest issue of Culture Wars. This is, uh, my wife and me, uh, in California, Carmel, California. A man who never, I guarantee you, Charles Green, the architect, never read Aquinas. He was a Protestant. He was an American. Didn't know who he was. But the idea that you could understand Logos approach Logos through beauty. is something he understood and that's what he did with his house. There are pictures in there of of the house itself.
1: Excellent. Next time we talk, I will have read uh, The Dangers of Beauty and uh, on behalf of our friends, I will be able to ask some more questions about The Dangers of Beauty. In the meantime, I will take it to Argentina and hopefully and luckily uh, we will be able to translate it into Spanish. Great. So I thank you very much, and we always look forward to having you in Argentina again.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Luis, and thank you for translating these books into Spanish. Most welcome. Thank you.